Turn with me to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John. We'll be looking at chapter 17, verses 24 through 26. The conclusion of the Lord's upper room discourse and his upper room prayer. And we'll be considering the hope of glory. John 17, verses 24 through 26. Give attention to God's holy word. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would once again answer the prayer of your Son that we might be where Christ is, that we might behold His glory and the love with which You have loved Him before the foundation of the world, and that He in our midst would declare His name, that His love might be in us, and that He might be in us. And we pray You would do this all for the sake of the love that You bear to Your only begotten Son, in whose name we pray, Amen. Well, many of you, I'm sure, have heard of Stoicism. Stoicism is a philosophy that basically teaches self-control in the midst of difficulty. Now, there may be some good insights from Stoicism, some things here and there that could be profitable to us. Many have actually uh, noted that some of the things Stoicism teaches are very similar to what the Apostle Paul will teach. So while there may be some good insights from the Stoics, especially in human psychology, It is fundamentally wrong. Now, Stoicism is fundamentally wrong for the same reason that all pagan philosophy is wrong. It lacks the chief virtues necessary to live in a fallen world. The pagan virtues, perhaps you're aware of these, the men's study, we talked about these this past week. The the pagan virtues were four. Wisdom, temperance, justice, and courage. Those are the classical virtues, and that's basically the toolbox that all pagan philosophy had to work with. Now, these virtues are good as far as they go, but they do not go far enough, especially in a fallen world, because these virtues cannot go past the grave. These virtues cannot take you beyond the river sticks, as the Greeks would call it. They cannot take you past the grave. This is why, on their own, these virtues and paganism in general always fails. The Christian virtues, however, are especially adapted for life in a fallen world. They are specifically given to enable mankind, to those that receive these virtues through Christ, to live in a fallen world. And of course, there are three. Faith, hope, and love. 
It is these three and these alone that are able to equip you to live in a fallen world because these alone overcome the grave. Is it not the grave that is the chief trial of a fallen world? At the end of the day, poverty, sickness, strife, contention, all of these other trials pale in comparison to the one great trial that every son of Adam has to face, the grave. At the end, there is only you, God, and eternity. And unless you have the virtues of hope, uh, unless you have the virtue of hope, you will be undone, as many have been undone in the past, at the prospect of their own death. Now, in this passage, the context, you need to keep it in mind, Christ is facing his own death. After he ends this prayer, he's going to be arrested and hauled off to Pilate and crucified shortly hereafter. Christ is facing his own death, the death of the cross. But in this passage as well, we learn how the hope of glory enabled Christ to endure the cross. Specifically, what we're going to learn, that in preparation for the cross, our Lord Jesus concludes his prayer. This is the last thing he prays for. The Lord Jesus concludes his prayer by expressing his hope of glory. In preparing for the cross, our Lord Jesus concludes his prayer by expressing his hope of glory. We're going to see three things in this passage. They match our three verses. Verse 24 is the glory of Christ. Verse 25 is the glory of the Father. And verse 26 is the glory of the Spirit. Verse 24 is the glory of Christ. Verse 25 is the glory of the Father. And verse 26 is the glory of the Spirit. So we begin by looking at the glory of Christ. Pardon me. You'll notice in verse 24, as Christ begins, it says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me. All throughout this prayer, Christ's prayer is focused on the elect, those whom the Father has chosen in love before the foundation of the world that he gave to his only begotten Son and for whom Christ is going to die. Those whom you gave me are the ones that Christ is praying for. He prays further that they may be with me where I am, that they may be united to me in a spiritual union. This is obviously a reference to union with Christ. We need to keep in mind that union with Christ, the union that he prays for, is a spiritual union. It is not a physical union. It's not a local union. Christ is not praying that the disciples would be on the cross with him. He's praying that all of the whole number of the elect would be with him as he goes to the cross, as he rises from the dead, and as he ascends to glory. Now, at, just at this point, it, it's important to sort of camp on this for a little bit. This is why your sins are forgiven. This is why Christ forgives your sins particularly. 
This is why the gospel is good news. The gospel is a past tense. It is finished. The gospel is not a present tense or a future tense. It is being finished or it will be finished. The gospel is past tense. Christ died for the sins of the elect because they were with him where he was when he died and when he rose and when he ascended. This is why your sins are forgiven, because Christ was not only dying by himself, but through a spiritual union with all of his people, they were with him when he died. Notice he says that I pray that they might be with me where I am. This is not uh, only speaking about the cross, but as we see, it's speaking more importantly about the glory that will come after the cross. It is through this union with Christ... And it's through his work, through his people, that he fills the whole creation. Remember Daniel's prophecy when uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw the vision of the statue with the four medals. And Nebuchadnezzar saw the statue and there was a little stone cut without hands and it struck the feet of that statue. The statue topples and then that little stone becomes a giant mountain that fills the entire earth. As Daniel interprets that dream for Nebuchadnezzar, He says that uh, this stone will become a kingdom that will overwhelm and consume all other kingdoms. Now get the visual picture in your mind. It's a little stone down in the ground. And then over time, perhaps it was suddenly in the vision, but over time, the stone ascends. And as it ascends, the mountain comes up from underneath it. And the bottom of that mountain spreads out over the entire earth. The higher it ascends, the wider the base has to be. This mountain is the kingdom of Christ, and it is through union with him that Christ fills all of creation. This is what Paul the Apostle says in Ephesians chapter 1. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1 verse 22. He put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, the elect, his people, which is his body. Now notice what he says. His body is the fullness of him who, pardon me, fills all in all. So the fullness of Christ spreads throughout all the creation through his body, through those that are united to him. Now, we do have to say that this union with Christ, even though it began in the decree of election, is experienced and enjoyed through faith. Union with Christ is enjoyed through faith. Paul the Apostle writes in that very same passage, Ephesians 2, verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Notice that Paul describes the glory of our union with Christ, that we are seated with him in heavenly places, and we enjoy this by grace through faith. 
Christ prays a little bit more for those he has been given by the Father. Back in John 17, he prays for the elect. He says, those that you've given to me, I pray that they might be with me where I am so that they might behold the glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. What Christ is praying for, for his elect, is that we might behold his own glory. That we might see how glorious he is in his person. Notice again the connection here between glory and love. That they might behold the glory that I had with you, which you gave me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. We noted last time as we looked at the previous section, the unique glory of Christ, the thing that sets him apart from all mankind is that he's the beloved of the Father. The glory of Christ is that he is the exclusive object of the Father's love. All of the affection, all of the joy, all of the hopes, all of the dreams, if we can speak that way about God the Father, all of it is focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. John writes at the beginning of his letter, he says, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, who is the very heartbeat of the Father, has declared the name of the Father. This is the unique glory of Christ. And this is what happens when we love something, isn't it? You know, perhaps you have um, a bunch of clutter in your attic or your basement, as we do. And as you begin the spring cleaning, you go through all of the junk and the clutter, and perhaps you or your wife or one of your children, you, you pick up this thing that to you looks like a piece of trash. But then they respond, no, don't throw that away. I love that thing. I want to keep that thing. That was um, grandma's brooch, or that was grandpa's jacket, or that was something. It's a beloved thing, and that places a glory on it that makes it unique. Likewise with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, You see that the glory and the love are connected, and notice that he says, they may behold my glory... Um, they may behold my glory which I had with you before the world was. This, beholding the love of Christ, or I should say the love of the Father for Christ, happens by the power of the resurrection. This beholding of the glory of Christ among the church happens because of the power of the resurrection. Think about the situation that they're in. Christ is going to the cross. And as he's going to the cross, you remember what the crowds said to him. He said he was the beloved of the Father. He trusted in God. Let God help him. While Christ was on the cross, he was covered in shame and cursing. To all outward appearances, the most inglorious event in all of history. But then Christ rose. But then Christ is brought back from the dead. Then Christ is elevated and God the Father showed the world that he is my beloved son through the power of the resurrection. This also happens for us through the means of grace. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 3. 
In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is writing to the Ephesian church. He's just described them as the temple of God, as the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. And one of the things temples are made for is to hold the glory. The glory dwells in the temple. And as Paul describes how that glory descends into the temple through preaching in verses 8 through 13, then in verse 14, one of my favorite prayers in the New Testament, he says this. He says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with all might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, length, depth, and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see the connection between glory, love, and fullness. This is what Christ prays for. This is what Paul prays for, for the church. Now we need to ask ourselves, what do we look for in the Scriptures? What do we look for in prayer? Many people approach the Scriptures and, and are looking for something they ought not to be looking for. Many people go to prayer and look for something they ought not to be looking for in prayer. You notice how Paul, in this passage, connects the Word, his preaching, and his prayer that the people would come to know the glory of Christ more and more. The thing we are to look for in the means of grace is not knowledge, it's not insight, it's the glory of Christ. That's what Christ prayed for, that's what he promises to show you. Uh, continuing in John 17, he prays, and you'll notice what he says here uh, in verse 24 still, we're still on the glory of Christ. I desire, uh, um, uh, end of the verse, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. The glory that he's referring to is his glory as the eternal Son of God. This is more than the glory of the mediator. This is the glory of Christ as the eternal Son of God. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 3 that you might know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. It's the knowledge of the eternal Son of God. Now, to apply this a little bit, remember what Christ is doing. He's getting ready to die for his elect. And as his cross was on the horizon, you were on his mind. Notice that this prayer almost has nothing to do with himself, it has everything to do with his people. Father, I'm about to die. Bring my people with me that they might see my glory. He was praying for his people as he was about to die. And his hope is that you would see him as he really is, the beloved of the Father. That's the first thing you should see here. Christ's love for his own people. When he came and lived and died, he had no thought for himself. But he exemplified what he tells us his disciples. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. The second thing to learn about Christ here is to follow his example. The book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 2, no need to turn there. The, the author says that as you go through this life and you go through the trials, he says, look unto Jesus, 
the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him, for the hope of glory that he put his, uh, he put his hope in, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of God. This is the model for how you go through trials. This is the model for how you go through hardship. You don't look for some resolution. You look for the glory that will come afterward, especially if it's in the way of righteousness. Well, we've seen the the glory of Christ and, and his hope that we might know his glory. He moves on then to talk about the glory of the Father in verse 25. He says here in verse 25, O righteous Father, just note at this point, see the passion of the Lord Jesus as he's praying. He, he, he's going along in his prayer, praying for his church, praying that they would be kept for the world, sanctify them in the truth, that they might see my glory. And as the, as the, the crucifixion is coming nearer, he cries out, O righteous Father. You see the passion of the Lord Jesus in this prayer as he's coming to a close. The world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. Notice firstly about the glory of the Father. It is unapproachable by mankind. You see what he says? O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. The glory of the Father is so infinite and eternal that man cannot handle it. You remember when the Lord shows up in the Old Testament at several different places he, uh, he tells Moses explicitly, no man can see my face and live. That's not only because of our sinfulness, but that's because of the infinite weight of the glory of the eternal God. We cannot handle it. It is beyond our comprehension. But the Son knows the Father. You see what he says? The world has not known you, but I have known you. Christ alone, because he is also eternal, along with the Father, can comprehend the Father. This is what he says in Matthew 11, verse 27. He says, For so it seemed good in your sight, Father. Then he says, No man has known the Father except the Son. I'm sorry, no man has known the Son except the Father. And no man has known the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. This then is the basis for the gospel invitation to know the Father through the Son. This is why John says throughout his gospel and in his letters, unless you have the Son, you do not have the Father either. The Son is the only one who knows the Father. The Son is the only one who can reveal the Father to you because he's the only one that knows him. And so as he prays here, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. We need to marvel in this. The glory of the Father is beyond your comprehension. The glory of the eternal God is something you cannot fully comprehend. We get sparks and glimmers. We get tastes and appetizers of His glory in this life. But we do not have even a fraction of the picture of the glory of God. This is why Paul says in Romans 11, this is why John Calvin would say, there are certain things in theology where questions stop and worship begins. This is one of those things. We stop and worship the Father. 
He goes on to say, uh, he continues in verse 25 and, and prays, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. Christ goes a little bit further in those that he's praying for. He prayed for the elect that the Father gave him. Now he prays for those that have actually received Christ by faith. They have believed in him. Through faith in Christ, they behold the glory of the Father in Christ. You remember Peter's confession. Who do men say that I am? You're Jeremiah or Elijah or one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Through faith in Christ, they see the glory of the Father upon Jesus of Nazareth. This is what Paul the Apostle says in 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4, I'll just read this passage. He says this, Therefore, since we have this ministry, we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe. Listen, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, when the gospel is preached to you, God is, as it were, saying to your hearts, let there be light, and there is light through the preaching of Christ, through the glory of God. Now returning to John 17. He prays for those the Father has given him. says, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have come in to believe in me. We need to notice the argument that Christ is using. Note that Christ is using an argument here. The, the essence of his argument is, Heavenly Father, these have received me. You receive them. These have believed in me. You, Heavenly Father, save them. You, Heavenly Father, show them my glory. You, Heavenly Father, do for them what you would do for me because they are mine. And so he uses an argument with his Father. It is good to use arguments in prayer. It is good to reason with God in prayer. You see this all throughout the Psalms, don't you? David says in many places, I'm the son of your maidservant. Look upon me and the, uh, the, 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 the cleanness of my hands and answer me. Read the book of Nehemiah. He says constantly throughout there, Lord, remember the good that I've done for these people and save them from their enemies. You can use arguments in prayer, and it's appropriate to do this not for the Father's sake. We're not arguing with God to persuade Him to do something He doesn't want to do. Arguments in prayer are actually helpful for your faith. These arguments buttress our faith and help, us, help our faith to be strengthened, especially in the midst of trials. The Lord Jesus was a man just like you and me, without sin. The Lord Jesus was a man 
as a man, was limited in his knowledge. The Lord Jesus had to use the means of grace to strengthen his own faith just like any other man. And so Christ, here on the eve of the cross, is praying, O righteous Father, I have known you. These have come to believe in me. Please answer my prayer because I'm departing from this world. And so Christ uses arguments. Use arguments in your prayers. I bet it will strengthen your faith in prayer as you learn how to reason with God in prayer. Here's the lesson from verse 25. If you want to know more of God, know more of Christ. If you want to know more of the Father, know more of Christ. Christ is the one who shows you the Father. Christ is the only begotten. Secondly, pray as Christ prayed. Use arguments in prayer. Appeal to the Father. Appeal to Him and say, Lord, do this for the sake of Your Son, whom You love. Answer us for the sake of Your Son, who is Your only begotten. Answer us for the sake of His merit. His merits are eternal. Look at His merits, Lord, and answer us for His sake. That's an argument in prayer. But finally, pray for the thing that Christ prayed for. That His glory would shine. That His glory would shine upon you. There's, very, there's a lot of practical help here, especially in the midst of trial. It's very tempting when we go through trials to pray for a certain outcome. Lord, let it not be cancer. Lord, let it not be X, Y, Z. It's okay to express our desires. We should cast our cares upon God. I'm not saying don't do that. But what I am saying is you have no promise that that will be answered. It might be cancer. It might be X, Y, Z and ABC. But one prayer you can pray that God will always answer is let Christ be glorified in this. Glorify Christ in the midst of this. He will answer that prayer just as he did for Christ. Well, he tells us about the glory of himself, the glory of the Father, finally, the glory of the Spirit. That's in verse 26. Christ continues to pray and says, I have declared to them your name and will declare it. Notice the end of the verse. Um, That the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Notice the emphasis on verse 26 is not so much on glory, but it's that the love of Christ might be in us, that we might experience the love of Christ and that love being in us, Christ might be in us as well. Now, if I've interpreted this passage correctly, uh, this verse is talking about the Holy Spirit. Verse 24 is about the Son. Verse 25 is about the Father. We should expect the third member of the Trinity to show up in some way. But here's the difficulty. The Holy Spirit is the most reticent of the members of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is the one member of the Trinity whose job it is to not talk about himself. The Holy Spirit's job is actually to talk about Christ. And so even though the Spirit is not mentioned by name here, the effect of the Spirit is. The work of the Spirit is described. And so it's my contention this is about the Holy Spirit. 
Now, the role of the Holy Spirit, as we see in John, you can just look at 16.7, perhaps one page over. John 16.7, the Holy Spirit's job is to exalt Christ. He says in verse 7, marvel of marvels, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Why is the Holy Spirit an advantage to us? Why is he more advantageous than the presence of Christ? Well, it has to do with this one truth that Christ is praying for. It is the Holy Spirit's job to pour the love of God into your hearts. The Holy Spirit's unique job is to take the love of the Father expressed in the work of the Son and apply it to your heart in a way that Christ in his flesh could not do until he died and rose again. Consider some passages. We already looked at Ephesians 3. Paul prays that you would be strengthened by the Spirit. Why do we need to be strengthened by the Spirit, Paul? So you can bear the love of Christ. So you can know the love of Christ. Paul writes further in a different passage, Romans 5. Romans 5, verses 1 through 8, perhaps a very precious passage to you. Notice also the connection with trials. Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. I doubt that Stoics would glory in a tribulation, but Christians do. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint. Why does hope not disappoint? Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Hope does not disappoint because it is a fruit of the resurrection, just as the Holy Spirit poured out is a fruit of the resurrection. Now, how does the Holy Spirit give this love to us? What is the love of God poured into our hearts? Keep reading. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man one will die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His love to us. God doesn't promise his love. God doesn't emote his love. God doesn't talk about his love. He demonstrated his love for you in that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. Father, I pray that those whom you've given to me may be with me where I am. This is the love of Christ that the Holy Spirit pours out into your hearts. But notice the connection. It's the Holy Spirit that does this. It's the Holy Spirit that brings it to bear on your hearts. This is why he's called the comforter. This is why he's called the paraclete. The principal thing he does when you're going through a trial, when you're facing your cross, is that he envelops you in the blanket of the Father's love and says, even though this is going on, The Father loves you, just as he did with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, again, back in John 17, the Holy Spirit works ordinarily through means. The Holy Spirit works ordinarily through means. Christ mentions these means in verse 26. I have declared to them your name and will declare it. The means of the Holy Spirit is the proclamation of the gospel. We saw earlier in John 17, 6, the close connection between the name of the Father and the Word. I have declared my name to these, and they have kept your word. So there's a very close connection between proclaiming the name and preaching the gospel. Notice he says it's declared in the past. Christ says, I have declared to them your name, and they have come to believe. And now he's praying that I might continue to declare your name. Look at what he says. I have declared your name and will declare it. Look at the mystery that's going on here. Christ is about to die in his estate of humiliation. But he knows the plan of the Father that as I've come to declare the Father's name and accomplish his work, I still need to declare the Father's name after that work is finished. I have declared it. Oh, Father, allow me to continue declaring it after the cross. There is a statement here about Christ's continued declaration of the Father's name into the future. This is referenced in many, many places. Ephesians 2, 16 through 18. Paul the Apostle writes and says that he might reconcile them both in one body through his death on the cross. He came and preached peace. He, Christ, came to the Ephesians and preached peace. Later on in chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, Paul says, Do not live like the Gentiles, for you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard Christ. Not about Christ, but heard the voice of Christ. Likewise, in Romans 10, 14 through 17, Paul has that great passage about how will they believe unless they hear, and how will they hear unless one is sent, uh, unless one preaches, and how will one preach unless one is sent. And then he concludes it in verse 17 and says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. The word that Paul uses there is the preached word of God. It's not the written word of God. This is what Christ declares and prays for, that as he has declared the name of the Father in the past, he may continue to declare the name of the Father. Notice the end of verse 26. He wishes to declare this so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Brothers and sisters, the preaching of the gospel is the means of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. And the message of the gospel to God's elect is the love of the Father for you. It is your adoption through the merits of Christ into the family of God. And when the gospel is preached to the elect of God that believe in Christ, the message is, no matter what's going on, God the Father loves you through Christ. Now notice very importantly, it has to be Christ who proclaims that. Not men. 
I don't know the Father. Only the Son knows the Father. I cannot comprehend the glory of God. Only Christ comprehends the glory of God. And just as it is throughout the New Testament, it is the apostles who are the tools that Christ uses, likewise in the church of today. Preachers are merely tools that Christ uses to proclaim his gospel. Now, don't lose the context. Christ is praying in preparation for the cross. And it says in Hebrews 12, 2, that he, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. What was the joy that was set before Christ? It's this dynamic. Look at Psalm 22, 22. Psalm 22 is, as you know, the crucifixion psalm. Begins in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, what Christ said as he was dying on the cross. And then in verse 22, there's a shift to after the cross. And Christ says this, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. The joy that was set before Christ, the hope of glory that enabled him to endure the cross, was to see you and me gathered in his assembly where he comes and proclaims the name of the Father. That's the joy that was set before him. Not his own, uh, not the angels just praising him in heaven and him doing nothing, but him by the Spirit coming down and proclaiming the name of his Father in the midst of us. That's the joy of Christ that enabled him to endure the cross. Let me translate that for you. You are the joy that was set before him. He prayed, Father, that the ones you've given me might be with me where I am. He prayed that I might declare your name to the ones you've given to me. And so as Christ is on the eve of his cross, the thing that's on his mind is his people who believe in him and see the glory of the Father in him. Christ endured his trial by placing his hope in the glory that should follow. That his own glory would shine upon his people. That the glory of the Father would shine upon them. And that the glory of the Spirit would descend and abide in them through the ordained means of his own preaching. You, in your trials, are also to set your hope on the glory to come. This is what Paul teaches in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. If you have, died, if you have been risen with Christ, set your mind on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. For you died... And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. And what is the glory that you will appear in? What is the, the shine of the glory of the saints? The shine of the glory of the saints is that we are the beloved of Jehovah. That's the glory of his people. And that's the glory that he will clothe you with at the end. Therefore, set your mind on these things. 
look to these things. Even now, in our trial as a congregation, know this. God puts those he intends to beautify with his love through very fiery trials. This love is so glorious, so blinding, so overpowering, as Paul calls it, it is beyond knowledge that in the end, the trial will be forgotten. And all that will remain is the love of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your Son, for his prayers and this this window into his great soul. We ask, O Lord, that you would help us to follow the example of our Lord, not only in taking up our cross, but also in setting our hope on the glory to come. We pray for our congregation that you would beautify us with your love by the Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.